Hey, if you've got a Bible there, can you turn with me at the moment to Matthew chapter 16? We're going to get there uh, in a second. Before we do, I just want to uh, lay a bit of a foundation and share uh, a few thoughts. Um, maybe some of you people watching, you can relate to this. Maybe some of you can't. But anyone ever have uh, the old TV sets? Remember the olden day TV sets where you actually had to get up and turn a dial to change the channel? And you had a little set of rabbit ears on the top that uh, you had to turn depending on the weather to see whether you could pick up a reception. I'm sure some of you can relate to that. Some of you are probably going, what's he talking about? Uh, yeah, that's way back in the day when a phone actually had a cord on it too and it was attached to it. Anyway, a whole different world but um, there used to be a time where we used to have those TV sets and, and, and do you ever remember where sometimes the picture would get fuzzy and you'd bang them anyone ever do that you'd belt them on the side and when you banged them on the side all of a sudden the picture would come out with a bit more clarity and you'd be able to see whatever it is that you were watching on TV uh, it's amazing how we used to fix a lot of things by just simply giving them a slap or a bump my uh, dad, I remember, I uh, used to have a Triumph, I think it was a Triumph 2000, I had a 2500 at one point as well, but an old Triumph 2000, a white one, my dad bought it for me for $100 when I got my licence and he did it up for me and registered, it was a great car, but every now and then it wouldn't start, and I'd turn the, the ignition and the starter just wouldn't kick over, and so I remember dad coming out one time with a hammer and he whacked the starter motor with a hammer and then said, try it now, and I tried it and bang, there you go, the, the car would start, so I started carrying a hammer with me in the car, and if the starter motor wouldn't click over, I'd just get the hammer and belt it with a hammer. And for some reason, it would fire it up, it would start. One of the great mysteries of the world, I guess. If you're a mechanic, you probably understand what was going on there. Uh, all I knew was, hey, whack with a hammer and it'll work. Uh, it doesn't work with everything in life. Don't go whacking uh, your kids with a hammer or your neighbour with a hammer to get them to do what you want. But uh, it used to work there with the car. You know, I wonder at the moment whether the church is getting a whack with a hammer. Just a thought. I'm not saying that God's whacking us with a hammer because we're stupid or we're broken or uh, he doesn't love us. You know, some people are, uh, every time something happens in the world, they're, they're trying to find a prophetic reason how God is punishing planet Earth. I just don't see that. When Jesus uh, uh, came, uh, he read out of the prophet Isaiah and he said, um, uh, talking about himself, and he said, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stopped there. Go back to Isaiah and you continue on what he was, was sharing. And the next, very next part of that sentence actually says, says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus didn't go there because the day of vengeance will come when the Lord returns. But right now, we live in um, the acceptable year of the Lord. This is a good time to be alive. And I don't believe that God is, is trying to hurt us to teach us lessons. I've got four kids and not once did I ever put one of my children's face on a barbecue hot plate just to teach them, hey, don't touch, it's hot. Uh, but if they did put their hand on the barbecue hot plate and burn themselves, I would use that moment as an opportunity to get their attention on a couple of things and maybe speak to them about why they shouldn't be doing that. And that's kind of what I mean by getting a whack with a hammer. I wonder whether God is not using this situation to give us a whack uh, with a hammer and to readjust a few things. And I know individually and personally that's really happening for uh, all of us, not just, uh, as I've, I've, I've mentioned before, not just uh, the church, but it's happening for all of us. We're getting a, a bit of a whack with a hammer and we're getting a chance to restart again. We're getting a chance, as it were, to hit the reset button on the computer system and, and uh, you know, to get rid of all the old rubbish. I recently uh, gave an old computer to my daughter. She needed one for school. And the first thing I had to do was I had to go and take off all the other uh, rubbish, the documents and the messages and the stuff that I had on there. And then I had to hit this button called a factory reset button. When I hit that button, it just did the rest of the job and bang, when the computer fired up, it was just, uh, the, the computer was exactly how it was meant to be, <coughs> excuse me, when the manufacturer made it. I wonder whether this time is not an opportunity 
and God's not using it to his advantage and he's not hitting the reset button and maybe getting us back to our original factory settings. Um, go back with me just for one second to uh, First uh, Kings, uh, the book of First Kings and uh, chapter 8 and verse 27. This is, uh, I'm just going to lay a bit of a foundation then I'll quickly get into what I, I want to share. But in First Kings chapter 8 and verse 27, Solomon has built a temple. And uh, this is going to be the temple, the place where uh, uh, you know people would, would say that God's going to dwell. But here's what Solomon says. This is Solomon's prayer when he dedicates the temple. And this is what Solomon admits. This is the man who built the temple. And this is what he says about the temple. He says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. In other words, I'm building you a temple, God, but I'm doing it with a complete understanding that the heaven and the heavens of heavens can't contain you. It doesn't matter where I go, I can't contain you. It doesn't matter what I build for you, I can't contain you in it. In other words, I can't control you, God. I can't work you out all the time. I'm not in control at the end of the day. And let me just give you a bit of a tip. If you feel like you know God completely, if you feel like you've worked out everything he does and says, if you feel like you know exactly uh, all the formulas and, and to get the result that you want, if you have worked God out to that degree, if you're never shocked by God, never uh, uh, blindsided by something that he might do, then, then let me suggest to you, maybe you've got a God created in your image, because the Bible puts it the other way around, it says that we're created in his image. He's God, we're not. Remember that, he's God and we're not. But Solomon says here uh, that, that I'm going to build a temple. But he says, you know what? Here's what I'm going to admit right away from the start. There's never going to be holy places and sacred spaces when it comes to you, God. I can't contain you and I can't keep you in one place. Somewhere the lesson got lost and we fast forward to about the time of Jesus when Jesus comes. By this stage, there is a bit of a mentality that there are holy places and sacred spaces. And the temple in Jerusalem is the place, this is where it's at. And everybody travels in to Jerusalem, they go to the temple. It's the place where they have a heightened expectation of meeting with God, heightened expectation that he'll hear their prayers, that he'll work through them, that he'll work in them, heightened expectation that he'll accept their sacrifice, all that stuff. It all revolved around the temple. And of course, Jesus comes onto the scene. And like a big whack of a hammer, he disrupts the whole thing and shakes the religious world a little bit. And uh, we all know, I, I shared a couple of weeks ago, how did the religious leaders get traction on Jesus? What did they have to uh, come up with in order to finally get the wheels in motion to get him to the cross? Well, they had to get people to give false testimony. And the false testimony was this. This man said he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Don't touch the holy places and sacred spaces. Got Jesus in a lot of trouble. However, praise God, we all know that that was the plan of God anyway. Fast forward a little bit. And I, if you get on our Facebook page, I'll put a little post up on Wednesday. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. It says, after the death of Stephen. Stephen was uh, a man of God and uh, he, he preached a message that uh, was quite a powerful message. If you get a chance, go back, read Acts 6, 7, uh, and, and you'll get a, a, a full list of, of that message. Have a bit of a look at that message. It's, it's probably one of the largest uh, recorded messages in the New Testament. Uh, from one person, certainly the largest message in the book of Acts from one person. And uh, so he preaches this message. The religious leaders take him and they kill him. Um, uh, they stone him when he gets a bit of an audience with them. They get to a point in the message where they can't handle it anymore and they stone this guy. But again, how did they get him? Uh, what did they use to get traction to get Stephen uh, to be dragged into the courts of the religious leaders to have the chance to give this message to them? 
Here's what they did. They had a false witness. What do you think the false witness said? Well, the false witness said that he speaks against the customs of Moses. Jesus got, got accused of the same thing. And also that he speaks against this holy place. Go and have a look at it. You'll see it uh, uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. He speaks against the holy place. Here we go. What has Stephen done? He's touched the holy places and sacred spaces again. Don't touch the holy places and the sacred spaces. If you read the Bible, you'll see it's always going to get you in trouble. Don't go there. Stay away from the holy places and sacred spaces. But nobody told God that. And so again, God reaches down with a hammer and he goes bang. Because by this stage, the church is pretty comfortable. They're in Jerusalem, but they haven't gone to Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts. Acts 1.8, Jesus says this. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll get goosebumps in your prayer times. You'll fall over when people pray. No, sorry, he didn't say that, did he? He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and uttermost parts. By the way, please, if you're sitting there going, oh, he's touching the whole... No, I'm not. I believe that you can get goosebumps when God, when you pray out. I have a problem with it. If you fall over when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, haven't got a problem with it. Uh, just having a little bit of fun here, people. So just relax. And... So here we go again. The church is in Jerusalem and they're comfortable. And they're, maybe they're doing everything right. Maybe they understand what's going on. Maybe they feel like they're in control. And so what does God do? Well, Stephen gets martyred. God picks up a hammer and bang, he hits the starter motor again. And, and what does he do every time he hits the starter motor? What he's doing is he's just getting the vehicle back on track. He's not taking it off track. The death of Jesus didn't get God's plan off track. It got it on track. The death of Stephen didn't get the church off track. It got the church back on track. Because all of a sudden, what does it say in Acts 8.1? It says that after the death of Stephen, people scattered. And where did they go? Judea and Samaria. So we've got Jerusalem covered. Now we're hitting Judea and Samaria. Now we're going somewhere. Fast forward to Acts chapter 10. And here's uh, Peter, a pillar of the church, somebody very close to the heart of Jesus. And here's, here he is in Acts chapter 10 on the roof of a building and he's being, uh, he goes into a trance and there's a sheet and the corners are let down and there are four-footed animals everywhere. And what does it say? This voice booms at him and says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, No, Lord, I won't eat any of this. They're all unclean animals. Here he is addressing the, the, the voice. He says, Lord, he knows it's God, but he's saying, God, you're wrong. I ain't going to do what you're telling me to do. You're telling me get up and kill and eat. God, I'm not going to do that because I, I know how it works. I've worked it all out and we don't touch that kind of stuff. We don't go there. Anyway, this happens three times. Eventually, uh, there's a knock at the door downstairs. Peter goes down and here's a delegation and a guy called Cornelius has called for Peter. So guess what's going to happen next chapter 10? We've gone Jerusalem. We've got a whack with the hammer. We finally went to Judea, Samaria. Now we're going to get a whack with the hammer and we're going to get out there to the uttermost parts of the earth. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 28, let's have a look at what Peter says when he gets to the house of Cornelius. Acts chapter 10 and verse 28. Peter says this. He says, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with, watch this, or go to one of another nation. You know how unlawful it is for me to go to one of another nation. What's he talking about? He's talking about holy places and sacred spaces. There are spaces and places where, where the church should be and there are places and spaces where the church just shouldn't go. There are places where we should belong and habitate and do our thing, but there are places where we just shouldn't go. There are domains where, where the church is allowed to shine and prosper, but there are other sections of the community and society where the church should just keep its nose out and keep to its own business. 
King David wrote something in Psalm 24, verse 1. He said this, he said, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Think about that. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It kind of reminisces and sounds a little bit like what Solomon was praying back there in Kings when he said, I'm going to build this temple, but he said, the heaven can't contain The heavens of the heavens can't contain you, God. You're everywhere. In other words, in the economy of God, there's no such thing as holy places and sacred spaces. Everywhere is God's holy place and everywhere is God's sacred space. That's the nature of being God. You get to go everywhere with or without my permission and you get to do what you wish and what you will. But God's confined himself to most of his activity and he chooses to do it through, firstly, he did it through the body of Jesus Christ when Jesus walked the earth. But when Jesus left, we all were given the privilege of being filled with the Spirit of God and being God's body, the church. And it's our responsibility to go into all the world, not just parts of the world, not the comfortable parts, not the parts we like, not the parts where we feel safe, but we have been encouraged and empowered to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. I wonder whether this little season that we're in right now, whether God's not taking his hammer to the starter mode. You know, we have been removed, not just from the, the, the rest of the world, not just from our workplaces, our places of employment and, and play and recreation and our rest, not just there, we've been removed from the sacred, the sacred place, the holy place, the sacred space. We've been removed from the temple as well. And it really is a divine opportunity to hit that reset button. It really is a divine opportunity to reevaluate the mission of our life. We're here for a purpose and we're here for a reason. I know we've all been doing value adjustments and so on. But I, I wonder when we get through this, I wonder whether God's not giving us an opportunity to, just as he did in, in, in Acts chapter uh, 8 with the death of Stephen, hit the starter motor and say, come on church, get back on track. You're doing good things. I love you, but get back on track. Maybe again in Acts chapter 10, same thing. God hits the starter and he goes, look, you're doing great things, but you've sort of taken your eyes off the bigger mission. Time to get back on track. Wow, wouldn't it be awesome if right now we were in that season in 2020 where God was picking up the hammer, hitting the starter and going, hey, come on, you're doing great. I love you, but let's get through this and let's get back on track. Matthew chapter 16, we've got this interesting story. And when I read it to you, you'll say, yeah, I've heard this before. But I want to just add a little bit of detail that maybe you're possibly not aware of. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, Jesus takes his disciples to a particular place. The name of that place is Caesarea Philippi. In Matthew 16, verse 13, it says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Nothing really amazing about that. Unless, of course, Caesarea Philippi is a place that you shouldn't be going. And lo and behold, it was. Caesarea Philippi was kind of considered the red light district, and good Jewish people didn't go there. You were uh, not encouraged to go there. In fact, you were encouraged to, to avoid it, almost prohibited from going to Caesarea Philippi. This place was known throughout the known world at the time. It was a place where there were a lot of um, worship of false gods, and there were a lot of evil practices that went along with that too. I'm not going to share with you some of those practices because I know this is uh, on video and you don't need to know that. You can look it up and research it for yourself. But there were a lot of vile practices and things that went on in the name of these other gods and the worship of these other gods. 
there was a, a mountain there and at the base of the mountain was a cave and water came out of the mountain and that water ran down a tributary and it went into the, the Jordan River. And this particular place where the water came out was a, a place of great significance as well. They, they used to uh, uh, sacrifice there. Some people would take their children, they would throw them in the waters that bubbled out, uh, live, live children, and they would die. And this would be a sacrifice to the Greek god Pan, who was like a god of fertility. And they believed that, this, uh, that these gods would go into that cave and they would go into and live in a series of cave systems down through the water and under the mountain. They would live there in the, uh, the, the um, uh, winter months. And then come springtime, that those gods would come back out. Of course, spring being a time of fertility and growth and so on. This place was literally referred to as the gates to the underworld, the, the, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades. So I want you to put all that into perspective. All of a sudden, Jesus says to his disciples, let's go, I'm going to take you somewhere. And he takes them. And as he starts walking towards Caesarea Philippi, they're going, wow, this shouldn't be happening. This is a place we shouldn't be going. I'm nervous. I'm scared. I'm uncomfortable. I don't know what to expect. But it doesn't change the fact that Jesus took them there. Jesus actually took them to a place that was outside their comfort zone. He took them to a place that traditionally... They were led to believe they shouldn't be involved in. Traditionally, they shouldn't be in a place like that. They shouldn't be going there. But Jesus took them there. And here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to think about uh, and mull over in your head and see how this applies to you. Because you've got a, a position in the world. You've got a sphere of influence at a place that God has called you to minister in. And yes, I'll use that word and I mean it with every inch of my heart. You are a minister for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't care whether you work for church. I don't care whether you work in hospitality. I don't care whether you're a builder. I don't care whether you own your business. I don't care if you stack shelves at Woolworths. I don't care what you do. You're in a position and a place and you have a sphere of influence unique to every human being. And you're in that place, and I want you to know this, that, that you're not just a worker for a company. You're not just somebody making money for someone else. You're not someone just making money for you. You are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you are. You're anointed with power, Holy Spirit's upon you to be a minister, to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And here's what Jesus says to them once he's got them in this place. In verse 18 of Matthew 16, after Peter answers and says, you know, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says this, he says, I also say to you that you're Peter. And on this rock, the rock is the revelation of who Jesus is. On this revelation, I'll build my church. Watch this. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I read this the other day. And all of a sudden I had flashbacks of all those movies, you know, where the, 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 the armies are up on the top of the mountain, the knights, and they've got their, their gear and the, the enemy are down the bottom and they're going to charge down the hill and attack them. And somebody goes, Aah! and they go, Aah! and they pick up their gates and they run down the hill with their gates and they start smashing people with their gates and hitting people with the gates. Well, nobody actually attacks anybody with a gate, do they? Unless, of course, you're watching a Monty Python film, maybe it's possible. But being serious... Nobody attacks with a gate. What's a gate? A gate is actually a defensive structure. It's not an attacking structure. A gate is a defensive structure. A gate is something that secures what's behind it. So in other words, the gates of hell. Hell has these gates. He's saying that there are these, these gates of hell, this literal place that he took them to. And he, he used this word picture and he said the gates of Hades, this place we're in with all this idol worship and all the evil practices and, and everything that the devil is doing here, this will not prevail. These gates are here, but they will not prevail against what I'm going to do. They're not going to prevail against the church. Hell has gates. We have a sword. 
Hell has gates. What do gates do? They're defensive things that are there to conceal and protect what's behind the gates. You know, I believe that God is calling to the church. March upon the gates. Bust down the gates. Get through the gates. Because what's behind the gates doesn't belong to the devil. What's behind the gates belongs to God. What's behind the gates belongs to the kingdom. And we need to go after those spaces and after those places. We need to kick down those gates. You see, Jesus took the disciples outside their comfort zone. Jesus took them to a place that was definitely not a holy place and a sacred space. But he said, you know what? It should be a holy place and a sacred space. Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We've been tricked into thinking that there are certain areas of society that we should stick our nose into and certain areas where we shouldn't. And I wonder whether this is not a bit of a wake-up call for us. When we do converge and get out of this, I wonder if the church will find its voice again. I wonder if the church will find its confidence in God again. I wonder if the church will stop apologising for the fact that we might not believe everything that the rest of the world believes. I wonder if we'll stop feeling like we've got to walk around on eggshells. I wonder if we'll, we'll, we'll feel like we don't have to keep pulling ourselves back and retreating from society. In fact, in John 17, 15, Jesus prayed this prayer. Specifically, he said to the Father, he said, Father, I do not pray that you would take them out of the world but simply that you would protect them from the evil one. I'm not praying that you would take them out of the world. Why? Because I need them in the world. They're my hands and they're my feet. And I need them to storm the gates of Hades. You see, the church are the aggressors here in the spiritual battle. We're the ones that are more than conquerors. We're the ones that need to be going forward and making a difference in the world. finish up, I just want to remind you of something. Uh, Many, many years ago when I first joined Youth with a Mission, Uh, One of the very first lectures I went to, first things I ever heard, a guy was talking about these seven society shapers. You might know them as mind molders, or maybe they're called the seven mountains or something now. And here's what they are, the areas of society. And if you influence these areas of society, you can influence a society. Here's where they are, government, church, family, education, media, arts and entertainment, and business. You know what? Here's the thing. I feel like we do a really, really good job in the church space, the religious space, and we spend so much time and energy and focus on that. Wouldn't it be great to emerge out of here and to find our voice and to find our hands and to find our feet and to find our confidence in the space of government and family and education, media, arts, entertainment and business? I wonder what kind of an influence we could have in the world. I wonder whether God's not hitting the starter motor at the moment. You go, hey, come on, guys, we're going to hit the reset button. We're going to whack the starter motor here on the car. I'm going to give you guys a chance. I'm not trying to take you off course here. I'm giving you a divine moment in human history to get yourselves back on track with the original intention, plan, and mission of God for the church. We are a movement that should be infiltrating society. We are a movement that should be going up to the very gates of hell themselves, kicking them down. Jesus even said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. He said, I'll give you the keys that you need. I'll give you the keys that you need in your own personal world. I'll give you the keys you need in your sphere of influence. I'll give you the keys you need within the culture to walk up to the gates of hell and to smash down those gates and to take back that which the enemy knows is not his. That's why he's hiding it behind a gate. That's why he's worried about what the church is capable of doing. Wouldn't it be awesome to be a part of that generation of the church that stood up and went, you know what? I'm, I'm sick of being ashamed. I'm sick of being embarrassed. I'm not going to hold back anymore. I'm not going to be rude. I'm not going to be arrogant. But I'm going to take up that sword and I'm going to march forward into the territory. You know why? Because I've got every right to go into those spheres because the earth is the Lord's and absolutely everything and everyone in it. Wouldn't it be great to be a part of that generation of believers? Well, let's pray we are. God bless you guys.